Well, good morning. If you are with the children's ministry, you are excused. For the rest of us, we are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John. We are in John chapter 15. We did the first half last week. We're going to finish and do and look at the first few verses of John chapter 16. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone would love to bring you a Bible. Expectations are pretty important. We all have our expectations. Sometimes we even have expectations that are hidden. But expectations, they're important because expectations affect how we live in this world. Uh, my, my family, uh, a week from tomorrow, we're going on vacation down to California for a week. And so I have some expectations for vacation, for my vacation, okay? I want to read two books. I want to sit on the beach and feel the warmth of the sun and hear the, just the, the repetitive ocean waves crashing on the beach. We're going to be in Coronado, so I want to run with Navy SEALs, okay? I want to wake up early in the morning and just sit out on the balcony and just smell the, the ocean and read my Bible. I want to go on museums for hours and just walk around and get lost in learning and in history. I want to go on walks with Lisa. I have all of these expectations that I'm really excited about. But they're my expectations, and there's a problem with my expectations. Actually, there's sort of four problems. <laughs> and they all have names. You see, my children have expectations of their own. And so they don't want to go to museums. They want to go to the most expensive and most stressful place that has ever been conceived. This place, I think I'm pronouncing it right. It's like Disneyland? Is that what it's called? That's, that's their expectation. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because if I bring my expectations to bear solely on my family, I could ruin vacation for everyone, right? Because I'm perpetually going to be frustrated, disappointed. Our expectations are important because if we have too high of expectations or the wrong expectations, we demand everyone kind of get along with our expectations. And so we need to be very careful with how we think about our expectations. Today's text, it's all about expectations. And what should we expect out of this world? So we're all living this world. We're all engaging with this world. And the question is, what sort of expectations do we have? Because if you expect too much, you're going to be constantly disappointed. Expect too little, you're not going to be fun to hang out with. You're going to be depressed. So, as a sort of Goldilocks principle, what should we expect out of this world so that we can be faithful as we live in this world? That's what this text is all about. Today, Jesus is going to give us lessons on what we can expect from this world as we live in the world. The big idea is going to be behind me. It's simply this. The world will hate you. This is, a, this is going to be one of those downer little. <laughs> the world will hate you. Expect it. There's your expectation. Now, there, as we kind of march through this text, 
Jesus gives us three, I think, sobering expectations as we live out in this world, right? And we're going to kind of work our way through that. So expectation number one, if the world hated Jesus, it's going to hate you. Expectation number two, some will accept Jesus's message, but many won't. And then expectation number three, as we live in a world that hates us, we need God's word. So turn with me to John chapter 15, starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have been, have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So what's the stake when it comes to our expectations? Chapter 16, verse 1. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. In many ways, the stakes couldn't be higher. So expectation number one, if the world hated Jesus, they will hate you. Or we could summarize it as uh, John writes in 1 John, don't be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. That really is verses 18 to 21, right? You see this kind of repetitive message over and over and over again, Jesus says to his disciples, and then by extension, all of us, the world's going to hate you. The world's going to hate you. The world's going to hate you. And he just keeps repeating this name over and over again as if he is assuming that they don't want to hear it. But they need to hear it. Ignorance is not bliss when it comes to this expectation. So verse 18, Jesus says, the world's going to hate you. After all, it hated first Jesus. And then it says, the world's going to hate you, or the world does hate you, verse 19, because the world lost you. Did you see that? Verse 19. So Jesus transferred us from their kingdom to his kingdom. And because of that reality, the world hates you. Then in verse 20, Jesus reminds his disciples what he told them back in chapter 13. Right? A servant is not greater than his master. And basically he's saying, okay, so I am the master, you're the servant, and the master is hated, there by extension, the servants will also be hated. And then finally, verse 21 Well, 
Jesus is hated because of his name. And if you follow Jesus, and if your name is on him, if you identify with Jesus, then you're going to be hated too. Now, Jesus keeps talking about hatred, but he uses this word, world. So what is he talking about? Because I think we, in kind of common language, we talk about world, and we talk about it more in physical, like uh, the material world. So we say things maybe like, I'm a citizen of the world, and we're talking about the, the, the created order. That's not what John's talking about. John has something different in mind when he's talking about the world and its opposition to Jesus, and then its opposition to the church. So let me just read a few uh, texts in the Gospel of John that we've already looked at to kind of fill us into what is this world that is in opposition to Christ. So John chapter 1, verse 9, we read this. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. This is all talking about Jesus. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So the world is that which does not know Jesus. Then if you go to John 7, 17, or 7, verse 7, you can look this up later. John 7, verse 7 says this. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Jesus, once again, is talking. Because I testify about the world that its works are evil. So not only does the world not know Jesus, but its works are evil. And then just one more. John 14, verse 30. We read, I will no longer talk much with you because the ruler of this world is coming. And that's a reference to Satan. So what is this world? The world is not physical. It's not, that's not what, how John is using it. He's using it in a more theological way. The, the world is all that, all those things that are in opposition to Jesus and his kingdom. There, there are those things in the human heart that have sprung out because of sin, inspired by Satan, that are in opposition to Jesus' reign and rule in this world. That's what is in opposition. That's who hates Christ and the church. It's all things in opposition to Christ and his kingdom. Now, my guess is you're a little bit like me. I don't really like to be hated. I'm guessing you like to be liked as I like to be liked. And so you read verse 18, and then it just keeps reminding me. And I'm like, Jesus, calm down. I get it. But I don't like to be hated. I like to be liked. So what do we do with texts like this? Well, I think this is really, really practical for us. Because if we don't kind of come to grips with this expectation, I think a couple things are going to happen. I think at best, you're going to be really, really disappointed because you're constantly going to be wanting to be liked and loved. And so at best, you're going to be disappointed. At worst, you might be angry, you might be resentful, or maybe even vengeful. But the Bible's clear that as it relates to hatred, we are not to fight hatred with hatred. We're not to slander with slander. We're not supposed to fight evil with evil. So how, how do we then love? How do we show kindness even in the midst of hatred? How do you not bring slander with slander? I mean, we might not uh, like act on our anger, but often we think about our anger. We think about what we would say to that person if given the chance, and it kind of makes us feel good for at least a little bit. 
This is why this expectation is so important for us to understand as we live in this world. Because the only way to not be vengeful, the only way not to be angry or perpetually disappointed is to realize that and to come to grips with the reality that any and all opposition to you is merely the fact that you are with Jesus. And so we need to reframe our lives in that reality. Isn't this what the early Christians did? You read the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 5, the disciples are, are arrested, and then they are freed. And instead of, you know, being uh, discouraged, uh, instead of them uh, being angry, we read of something very, very interesting in chapter 5. It says that instead, chapter 5, verse uh, 51, instead of uh, re- being resentful or revengeful, they were Rejoiceful. Acts 5, verse 41. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. The world, the world is going to hate us because of what we stand for. That's expectation number one. And I think this lesson is a lesson we can really learn from the historically black church in America. When you think about it, when I read uh, church history, it's very interesting that in the midst of the suffering and the hardship of so many people in slavery and then coming into reconstruction and segregation, in scores they were coming to Christ. They were Christians. They were turning to Christ. Now, how could they be Christians in the midst of so much suffering, pain, and suffering? I think one of the things is, as they looked at even the lynching tree, they didn't just see a lynching tree, they also saw the crucifixion. And they reframed their suffering and their hardship and saw it as an extension of what being a Christian is all about. The world will hate us. And any and all suffering, opposition, persecution that comes upon us is, by extension, just a reminder that we are with Jesus. The world will hate us. That's the first expectation. So don't be discouraged. The world's going to hate us, but in every way that they hate us, it's just a reminder that you're with Christ. Expectation number two. Some are going to accept the message. Others won't. That's verses 21 through 27. You'll notice that there's a shift. Uh, There's a shift in... Uh, people's opposition to Jesus, to the world's rejection of Jesus' message. So we see this language in verse 23 of his words, then in verse 24, his speech, and then his works. And so Jesus' words, his speech, his works are all coming and talking about that people are going to oppose and reject Jesus' message that he is king, that he's come as a king to de- to bring people and to transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that is how even uh, this quote from Psalm 69 works in verse 25. So Jesus is quoting from this very, very famous psalm in order to explain that even in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that people are going to reject the message of the Messiah. That, that, That psalm is actually a really messianic psalm. 
Psalm 69, go read it uh, this week. I'd encourage you to do so. At the beginning of Jesus's ministry in John 2, he quotes from that psalm when he's talking about his interaction with the temple. For zeal for my house. Uh, he, he quotes from there using that language, whatever it is. Zeal for my house. Uh, so he, he quotes it in John 2. And then Jesus quotes it as he's dying on a cross when he's got a parched mouth and he gets vinegar. That's also quoting from it. So Psalm, that, that Psalm really is the bookends of Jesus's ministry. And right here in the middle, he quotes from it again to remind them that as people rejected King David for no reason, for no fault of himself, so in a greater way, the world will reject King David's greater son, Jesus Christ, for no reason, without cause. The world is not going to accept Jesus and his message because the messages are mutually exclusive, right? The message of the gospel is Jesus is king. The message of the world, I don't care what the worldview is, it's basically this, your king. You can't square those two messages. Either Jesus is king or either I'm king. Now, the reality is, that many will reject Jesus' message. And this too, this expectation, when you think about it, is kind of discouraging. But in the midst of that discouragement, I think that's why we have verses 26 and 27. It's, it's interesting because it's like a parenthetical statement because back, uh, if, if you go down to chapter 16, halfway through, uh, John's going to pick up this theme of the Spirit and how the Spirit is going to work in the disciples' lives as they testify and witness to the risen Christ. So he's going to talk about it in a little bit. And starting in verse 1, he, he picks up the theme once again of hatred and persecution and opposition to the gospel. So, so why this like parenthetical phrase about the helper who's going to come and he's going to help you bear witness and testify to Jesus? I think it's for no other reason to encourage us and to remind us that as we live out this faith, some will reject the message, but others will not. So we have to live in that tension that not every Sunday there's going to be a revival. That you can't just manipulate and strong-arm people to repent and believe in the gospel. Not every Sunday is going to be a revival, but neither Will no one ever get saved? Sometimes revival does happen, but not every Sunday. When you think about it, the Christian is, in one sense, theologically speaking, the most pessimistic person in the world. And they're the most pessimistic person in the world because they know the true depths of sin in the human heart. Nothing should surprise us. It does, but we should step back and be like, Nothing should surprise us because that is the devastating effect of the blindness and devastation of sin. So you could say the Christian is, in one sense, the most pessimistic, and yet at the same time, the Christian is the most optimistic person because we've seen what Christ can do in the human heart to transform the human heart starting in this world and complete it in the next. So we're pessimistic, and yet at the same time, quite optimistic. So as we live out our Christian identity in this world, as we seek to make disciples, we should have pessimism and optimism. We should be 
optimistic and yet have not too much realism. We should should shoot for the moon and yet at the same time realize that sometimes the world is going to reject our message. Those aren't messages that are in tension. They're in harmony. Some will accept the message. Others will not. And it's our job, it's our job not to manipulate people, not to bait and switch people. Our job is, as parents, to put Jesus before your kids. Spouses, you put Jesus in front of your spouse. If you are employed, if you're working, you put Jesus in front of those you work with. In your neighborhoods, you put Jesus in front of your neighbors. Your friends at Thanksgiving and Christmas, when you're hanging out on Mother's Day, you put Jesus in front of those people. You testify to who Jesus is and you just raise the sail of the gospel and you see the Spirit move and sometimes People respond, and other times people don't respond. Now, we ought to think through how we can better persuade people and how to more effectively communicate the gospel. But if you think the gospel and the response is up to you, oh, you'll be perpetually disappointed and discouraged. And you'll just feel like, oh, I'm just a terrible evangelist. But if you're constantly believing that it's my job to just testify that Jesus is king and that all those who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ can have redemption and forgiveness, then you realize that some are going to respond in faith. And sometimes you never know which one it's going to be. I was, uh, I was leading an evangelistic Bible study in a fraternity and there was about 15 guys And there was one guy who was just really interested and he'd ask all the right questions and he was really, really engaged. And then there's this other guy who just was looked angry. You know, those faces just looked angry, looked like he was not interested at all. And so as I'm leading this, I'm just like, this guy's coming to Christ. This guy might shoot me. I'm not sure, but this guy definitely doesn't want anything to do with Jesus, right? And so I left and I had, you know, afterwards I had no idea what happened. A year later, I got a call from someone else that said, you got to meet with this guy. And I did. It was the angry guy. He had responded to the gospel. You just never know. You, I couldn't have made that up. Like, my job was not to like go, hmm, which one's going to respond, which not, and I'm going to pick it, and then I'm just going to focus. No, my job was, as God drew them into this evangelistic Bible study, my job was to keep pointing them to Jesus and to see the Spirit move. And it did. So, as we live out the mission to make disciples, as the chapel church seeks to live out our mission to make disciples of all nations, our job is to keep preaching Christ and him crucified, to keep testifying to Jesus in the good times and the bad times, when people don't want to hear it and when people do want to hear it, we just keep banging that long and realize that if they reject, Jesus told us that they're going to reject the message. If people in scores come to the message, we praise God. Jesus also said that some will respond. That's the second expectation. Some will accept the message, others will not. There's one more expectation, a needed expectation, and that is, starting in chapter 16, verse 1, as we live in a world that hates us, we need God's word. So chapter 16 opens up, I have said all these things to you to keep you from 
falling away. So we know this, that when social pressure, peer pressure, when pain enters into a community, there are some that think, peace out, this is too difficult. Can't beat them, join them. Right? And so Jesus knows that their temptation, that as the suffering comes, as the heat of persecution falls upon his disciples and the early church, and by extension all of us, he knows that some are going to just decide it's just not worth it. The the social cost is too high. The world is going to put all of its pressure, it's going to turn the whatever knob it thinks that it can turn in order to try to encourage you to be unfaithful to Christ. Verse 2 talks about that. It, it, it talks about that, that you will be put out of the synagogue. So, so there's a, a religious sort of persecution, but, but it's more than that. It's meaning that it's going to isolate you socially. The synagogue was like the center of, 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 of social life. And, it's gonna, and Jesus is saying, by your association with me, you are going to be on the outskirts of society. And even more than that, it says that there are people are going to be so blind, they're going to be so deceived that they are going to be in opposition to you. They're going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to treat you poorly. And they're going to think, verse 2, that they're doing it in service to God. Isn't that interesting? I mean, most people I meet are not like, oh, I, I just outright want to, to, to dictate your life and I'm really angry at all Christians. Usually they're saying, I think that your message is not good for human society and human flourishing. If they believed in God, they would think that their service was to God. That's the blindness of sin. And yet in the midst of this reality, that in one sense it's going to get worse, Jesus tells them, that social hatred is going to increase, Jesus says this. Verse 1, I have said these things. Then if you go on to verse 4, we read that same phrase. I have said these things to you. Right? A sort of literary bookend to this, a little inclusio. He's saying that in the midst of a world that hates you, you need my words. Or if you step back, by extension, he's saying you need God's word. As the world hates you, in order that you might not fall away, you need something stronger than willpower. You need something stronger than grit. You need something stronger than your own morality. You need God's word. Words matter. I've been told today's the Super Bowl. I don't know anything. I'm not a betting man, but I bet this, that right before each team goes onto the field, the coach is going to do something. He's going to gather his team, and he's going to use words to inspire his team. And then at halftime, I'm not a betting man, but my guess is that the coach is going to bring each team into their locker room, and he's going to use words to inspire his team to keep on winning or come back. Isn't that interesting? Words change reality. I mean, I, I saw this. I, I saw this before. Um, I, yesterday, I was um, co-coaching my son's basketball team, and uh, I, I was the assistant coach and the head coach. At halftime, we were down, 
And she inspired with words and inspired the team and said, work hard. Every rebound yours. And she just kept like inspiring. Like I was, I almost got on the court and played. Like I was motivated and the team did. They just worked hard and we got back into the game all because of words. Like, isn't that fascinating? Like words are powerful. That's why we say things like the, the pen is mightier than the sword. Words matter. How much more so God's word. God's word inspires. God's word transforms. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to not fall away, if you want to be faithful in this world, even when they come in opposition to you, even when you preach the gospel or just say, oh yeah, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, and they say, your message is offensive, abusive, it's filled with hatred, even when that comes upon you, the way that you can be faithful is to buoy your life in God's word. Even being faithful unto death. I don't want to sugarcoat it. Um, I'm, by personality and temperament, I'm pretty optimistic. And yet, even I, as about as optimistic as you could be, realizes that living here in Washington, in Puyallup, in Pierce County, we are outnumbered. We, in the church, are outflanked. We are out-resourced. We are out-everything. And yet, I don't think that's, what that means is that we ought to run. I don't think what that means is that we quit or we just take our ball and move somewhere else. I think that means that we keep on keeping. We keep on going. We keep on making disciples. Because, and I don't know about you, but I would rather pitch this church by hell than by the safety and comfort of church bells, to quote C.T. Studd. God is building his church. The gates of hell cannot overcome her. And our job isn't to get even. Our job isn't to be resentful or vengeful. Our job is to fight evil with love and kindness and to keep on preaching the gospel. And I I say all of that knowing that jobs are going to be lost. There's going to be friendships that are going to be lost. There's going to be casualties in the midst of all of this. But the expectation is And the expectation that Jesus wants us to come to grips with that I think is particularly hard for us Americans because we've had it so good for so long is that it might, or it probably will, or it's inevitably going to get harder. And yet nothing changes for us. We keep on preaching the gospel, keep on bearing witness that Jesus is king. And we just see the spirit move and see men and women come into a saving relationship with Christ. So, let me just end with this. Some of you, I'm guess, are discouraged. Some of you are discouraged that it's just hard living in this area. It's expensive, and though it's beautiful, sometimes various things happen, and you're like, not another thing, not another thing. Take solace. If the world hates you, 
it hated Jesus first. Like, turn your expectation that this is not heaven and turn your expectation according to God's word. Reframe it and remind yourself that when the world hates you and when the world rejects you and when the world does not accept Christ's message, that doesn't delegitimize the message or that Jesus is king. In, in many ways, it authenticates it all the more. Some will accept, some won't. Don't be too optimistic, but don't be too pessimistic. Keep on keeping on going. I am really excited. There is something, this is just intuition, but there is something going on in Pierce County that I'm really excited about building and being a part of the chapel church and other churches. I just meet with pastors and churches and there's just something happening that the brokenness of our region I think is going to be met by the hope of the gospel in the next 10 to 15 years. I hope, I pray for us that you all get to experience that and see God work a true revival in our midst, in our region, for our joy and God's glory. Let's pray. God, We just want to sit in silence for a moment and realize that all of us have expectations in this world that are not that are not biblical. So help us to reframe our expectations according to your word. Lord, we pray for those who are discouraged that you'd give hope. For those who, are, who have a romanticized optimism, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, remind them that, that this is not heaven. Lord, we pray that your word would, would reframe how we live in this world, that it would increase our generosity, that it would increase our love, Lord, we pray that we would be a church that continues to go back to your word, that we would be desperate to hear from you because we need your word to inspire us, to motivate us, to transform us. So we pray, Lord, that your word would speak heavy on our hearts. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.